Hi, and welcome to the US-China Conversation. My name is Michael Vatikiotis, your host for this podcast and the Asia Director of the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. In these difficult and unusual times, dialogue is needed more than ever. But dialogue is even more challenging when people can't meet face-to-face. So the aim of this conversation is to bring together experts from the United States and China in a joint discussion to consider some of the challenges that lie ahead for cooperation By jointly tackling these issues on a public platform, our hope is that some ideas and common ground can be identified for all to consider for the future. With me today for this podcast are Susan Thornton, former Acting Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia, and Professor Dawei at the University of International Relations in Beijing. Welcome to you both. Let me start with the issue that confronts both China and the United States most immediately, There's been a lot of concern around the world about the lack of effective global cooperation on tackling COVID-19. So why isn't this cooperation happening? And why has the rhetoric become so shrill and threatening? Susan, let me start by asking you. Well, thanks, Michael. It's great to be here with you today. Uh, I have to say, I think this COVID-19 crisis couldn't have come at a worse time. Uh, Of course, we have a presidential re-election campaign looming in the U.S., And the outcome of that election is now very likely to hinge on the outcome of this crisis. And it's definitely being perceived in the United States that the crisis is not being managed that well so far here. And so I think there is a very urgent feeling on the part of the current administration that they need to blame someone for the poor performance. And I think that China has become quite convenient scapegoat. Professor Dawei, the pandemic seems to be an ideal time for constructive Chinese diplomacy. So why has so much of the rhetoric been shrill and defensive? Well, I think if we look back for past two years, I think China and the U.S. suffered in terms of the bilateral relations. We had trade war and we had some other bad things. All those experiences seriously deepened the mistrust between the two sides. And China have much deeper strategic suspicion towards Trump administration. So when China suffered from this pandemic, China had the feeling that the the Trump administration may, may utilize this pandemic as a way to weaken China, to demonize China. Because of this distrust, I think very unfortunately, we reinforce each other and then we step into this fight. In the past, When China and the United States had problems, they could always use channels of dialogue. Speaking to U.S. officials, I sense that these channels have largely closed over the last two years. Susan, is this failure to communicate a big part of the problem? The low level of discourse that we see now between the United States and China is really appalling. Insults not only convey disrespect, But they're, you know, as a diplomat, I see them as a waste of political capital and leverage. I mean, diplomacy is to further national interests. It's not to make oneself feel good or to further one's personal political ambitions. It takes a lot of inner strength and discipline and cunning. We need leadership, which is seriously absent right now, to try to overcome the lack of communication and to be brave and take risks. And we're just not seeing it at the moment. Professor Dawei, one of the characteristics of the current situation is that Chinese officials feel the need to speak out using the language of firm resolve, pushing back strongly on any criticism. Is this also part of the problem? 
Yes, I, I agree with you. I think there is a very strong sense of humiliation or victimization. Many Chinese diplomats and officials who I talked with had this kind of feeling that the U.S. is utilize this opportunity, no matter their feeling is correct or not. That is their feeling. They believe that they need to be stand very firm. This kind of Emotion and the sentiments are driving many rhetorics, which I think is not very helpful for China and also not helpful for bilateral relations. So I hope both countries can step back and return to the professional tracks. Can you say that one reason dialogue on pragmatic issues of common concern has become so dysfunctional is the intrusion of arguments over the ideological differences between China and the United States? Yeah, I think. This is one of those issues that has been looming in the background throughout U.S.-China relations. We have two different systems, and you know it's always been difficult, government to government, because of this factor fitting our systems together, discussing, you know, how to work together in spite of those differences. And we've managed to do it in the past, but as China has grown stronger. I think U.S. officials and others in the U.S. have seen China now as an increasing challenge to the U.S. position in the world, and also as a threat. And I think if the U.S.-China relationship descends into across-the-board zero-sum rivalry, there won't be a possibility of cooperation because we will view each other as enemies, and we will think only of how to harm each other. So in a way, this will be worse than the Cold War because the U.S. and the Soviet Union were actually not that integrated, so they could only do limited harm to one another. I think you know this kind of descent into enmity would be the height of human folly, and I think the public narrative of U.S.-China relationship has to stress common interests and not zero-sum competition. I agree with Susan, though I don't hear the word of. Socialism or anti-socialism very much here in Beijing, but I do feel that many problems in our in China-U.S. bilateral relations lies in this difference of domestic systems. Even when we talk about difference of the economic system, it's actually related to China's system. The party, the government plays a role in the economic system. I think. Behind this, that's ideology. I think. At the same time, China has said it wants to contribute to global governance. It wants to be a rules giver as well as a rules taker. Susan, why is it not possible on this basis for China and the United States to do things together? Michael, it's a very good question, and one of the issues in U.S.-China relations has been that China has been very. Internally focused, it's been focused on its own development. It's been focused on its own periphery as far as its foreign policy is concerned. It hasn't really wanted to step up and take on a big role in dealing with outside issues. Another problem is I don't know what kind of international order this administration want to have. It had taken many, you know, steps to undermine current international institutions. From global、uh, warming to today's global public health governance, so I think China do want to work with the United States to, you know, try to build something together. But the problem is, the old leader is now changing the system. So how can we work with them? I think this is the problem. If the U.S. policy back to a more traditional, conventional. Route, I think it will lay the foundation for the two sides to work together. 
Another disruptive issue has been the idea of decoupling the two economies, driven by frustrations in the United States about technology and economic primacy. Shouldn't this give both countries pause for thought? Because the costs they will both have to bear once decoupling becomes reality will be sky high. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, of course, we don't know how long this pandemic is going to last or how deep this economic recession will go. But this is likely to dramatically affect both countries and really set back our economic futures and our dreams. Uh, I think the U.S. and China definitely need each other, economically speaking, but we can't currently see how to make the global economic system work for both our countries and what we see right now in the decoupling space, and I, I don't like to use the word decoupling, but everybody's using it, so it's hard to avoid it. You know, what you see is the, I think this is a function of new technologies, actually, where all technologies are being used for national security purposes and all national security technologies are infused with civilian sector inputs. So it's really the kind of national securitization of all of our new cutting edge economic sectors. And, you know, we have up to now been content to sort of rely on inputs from multiple countries. And we've had some kind of prudent risk taking, or at least we've had some kind of cost benefit analysis that enables us to do that. And now we are going to a, some kind of zero risk policy as far as national security goes and seemingly emphasizing national security over economic progress, which I think is actually going to be devastating for both the US and Chinese economies and for global growth in general. And I don't see a way out of this because it's very hard for businesses and people who are going to be affected by this to speak out against the national security imperatives of things that people are doing. If you compare security with economic interest, I think security will prevail. The economic decoupling probably will not as bad as Michael suggested. I think that will happen in the long run, but it will only happen in the long run. It's not easy to move your factory, to move your headquarters from one country to the other. I think it needs money. And actually, we are in a very difficult economic situation. I don't think many companies can do that now or in the short run. And Michael, if I could just interject here, I mean, one of the things that I have been thinking a lot about is who wins from decoupling. And my guess is that China believes that it wins from decoupling because it's got a market of one and a half billion people or so. And they also have a lot of the market in the developing world. We are not so self-confident as Susan suggested. I think everybody worries about this trend of decoupling. You could be correct. I mean, but what I want to say is people here have very deep concern over the decoupling because in past several decades, China benefits from coupling. China benefits from engagement with the United States and other countries. So now if the U.S. try to push for decoupling, disengagement, uh, I think Naturally, people here will worry about that. They think this is inconsistent with their experience in past four decades. 
With both countries focused on internal issues and national security priorities, let's now look forward and imagine what steps should be taken to improve the relationship in the short to medium term. Well, I think for the next six months, as we face this presidential election campaign, it's going to be very hard to set about improving the relationship. What I'm looking for in the next six months is to try to put a floor under it so we don't see a real bottom falling out of public opinion toward the other country in each on each side. No matter who's elected, come January, there's going to be a reevaluation of the relationship, and we need to try to hold on until then so that we can have a chance to make a new start. Besides the presidential summits, China and the U.S. had four dialogues. This was agreed by the two sides in the first year of the first term. I hope we can resume that dialogue between the bureaucrats. That will bring a positive momentum. If it's a democratic administration, I will say that will probably bring back more conventional approach to China and will bring a cohort of the establishment into the White House and other government agencies. I think that will be a good news. I believe we can do two things. One is dialogue. As I mentioned earlier, I think the two countries, particularly the two two governments, need to talk to each other because through dialogue, through this kind of communication, we can understand each other better and we can try to avoid any surprise. And another thing we can do, uh, we need to do is we need to inject the positive part, the positive momentum in our bilateral relations. We need to expand the areas that we can we can cooperate, we can work with each other. Very unfortunately, I think in past two years, the cooperation between China and the U.S. disappeared. I think we used to work with the Obama administration over climate issue. We should uh, work with the U.S. now over the global pandemic, but very unfortunately, we don't have those areas. I hope no matter who is president next year, next January, I hope we can work together on those global agendas. And also the two countries can at least work or uh, cooperate together on uh, economic issues like economic recovery from this pandemic. And also we can work on the bilateral economic relations. We already have phase one, as I said, this January, but we can have phase two, phase three. Anyway, we need uh, this kind of positive momentum. And also we need to avoid surprise and limit our approach we need to take a limited approach to the other side rather than an unlimited competition. That will be very, very bad. Yeah, Michael, I don't, could I just make two quick points? First on dialogue. Uh, I know when the Trump administration came in, they were very skeptical of dialogue with China, saying that this is only a way for China to delay doing anything. But if you look at the economic discussions that have been going on, the person who was most skeptical of dialogue and negotiations with China was Robert Lighthizer. But he has, since he started his negotiations with Liu He over the phase one and phase two trade agreements, has become the person most engaged in dialogue with China and has developed a good relationship and has learned a lot about China in the process. So to me, this dialogue is really an education process. And if you don't engage, then you're not learning anything about the other side. So how can you possibly pursue your objectives? My second point is that, you know, I really don't think that 
the public narrative of U.S.-China relations can be focused on competition because that will lead us inevitably to enmity just because of the nature of public narratives and the medias in both countries and the nationalism that is inherent in both of our populations. I think that Dawei is right. We need to find cooperation. And then more importantly, maybe even, we need to make cooperation or something positive about what we have as overlapping national interests as part of the story that we tell our people about our relationship. It's very important. Professor Dawei, if this is all about damage control, what is the best case scenario for a reset of the bilateral relationship? And, and what would such a reset look like? There are several things we can do uh, to reset the bilateral relations. I think we are facing a pandemic now, and this pandemic will continue. I don't know how long it will last. I don't know if it's six months or one year or five years. I don't know. But it will continue for a while. You know, we need to start our cooperation over this pandemic immediately. And also, of course, for next year, I think this is one thing we need to work together. And another thing I think is extremely important for the bilateral relations, we didn't mention it today, that is the people-to-people exchanges. I think in past three years or two years, I think the people-to-people exchanges between China and the U.S. shrinked a lot. And the Because of this pandemic, we don't have people-to-people exchanges now because the flight is stopped, right? And I think the two people, I mean, Chinese and Americans, dislike each other now. This is very, very sad. I think according to the Pew survey, 66% of Americans have a negative view uh, towards China. I think if you do a similar survey in, in China, I guess that percentage will be even higher. I think the two sides need to strengthen our people-to-people tie extremely, like uh, to make the visits to each other more convenient, to make our journalists work more conveniently, and also uh, I think to uh, let the tourists and the business community to interact each other. I think these are the fun foundation for the long-term, positive, stable China-U.S. relations? Well, I think, you know, if there is a chance for a kind of a reset, I think we have to stop making the U.S.-China relationship about contesting information operations and get back to sort of the pragmatic day-to-day work that people on both sides of the Pacific care about. And these are areas where the U.S. and China have, you know, very much overlapping views and interests. If you look at what the problems are out there that are going to face us in the future, they're not actually coming from major power competition. They're coming from global transnational challenges. And the current experience of this pandemic is the most glaring, obvious example. And as Dawei said, we need to get to work on it together and have a global coordinated response as soon as possible because these pandemics know no borders. But there are a myriad other things. Certainly environmental climate change issues is going to be a very major issue that we're all going to be facing in the near future. We have still a lot of extremism, terrorism, conflicts, migration problems, food supply problems, and we're all going to be facing a major problem with employment and 
labor markets in the future from the advent of technology. These are all areas where the U.S. and China need to work together, mostly in a multilateral context. And certainly global prosperity and trade is absolutely essential. The two largest economies in the world, we can't do without each other. We can't separate into two warring camps. I don't think that that's going to work. And I think that the current discourse around U.S.-China relations is completely unrealistic, not based at all on the actual pragmatic reality of our day-to-day world. And I think most people are tired of the politics and they want their leaders to just get back to getting it done for their people. And there we end this edition of the U.S.-China Conversation. My guests were Susan Thornton in New Haven and Professor Darwei in Beijing. And if you've enjoyed the show, please spread the word and leave a review on the platform where you get your podcasts. And I hope you'll excuse the odd technical glitch due to podcasting under the restraints of social distancing. The US-China Conversation was brought to you by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, a private Swiss foundation dedicated to peace. For now, from me, Michael Vaticutis. Until next time, goodbye.